But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, now we finally, finally, after a chapter and nine verses, have an outward that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Why are you a chosen race? Chosen, verse 1, royal priesthood. We just saw that priesthood. Holy nation. We, hold, we saw that call to holiness. Be holy for I am holy. A people of his own possession. We know that he, he purchased us with ransom. All those things. He's picking up the threads here. Of chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. Why? Why are you that? Why has he called you to himself that way? Answer, that you may Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been made alive. You have been brought out of the darkness of death through the new birth into the light of God's everlasting hope so that you might proclaim the excellencies that are being unfolded in, verse, in this book. The excellencies of God. You, what, what a great thing. If I were teaching a, class, a small group, I'd say next week, everybody come back with a list of all the excellencies of God you see in chapter 1 through 2-9. And see what, get, see what they come up with. All the excellencies, the beauties, the virtues, the greatnesses of God. That's what we're supposed to declare to Vancouver and Minneapolis, all of Canada, all of the United States, all the nations of the world. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy that's right. And now you have received mercy. You, you are a debtor. This is to use Paul's language now. You're a debtor to everybody in, in Vancouver, a debtor to everybody in your hometown, a debtor to the world, a debtor to the unreached peoples of the world because you've been shown mercy. You remember the parable in Matthew 18? This person owed the king $10 and this person owed the king uh, 20 years' wages. And the king, uh, I can get that right. This person owed the king 20 years wages and the king forgave him. He goes out and wrings the neck of his fellow servant who owes him $10. Something went wrong there, right? If, if you knew, if you knew yourself to be treated with that much mercy, you wouldn't go wring the neck of anybody. You'd be on your face with such deep humility and deep gratitude and, and deep um, self-denial and hesitancy to, to be a demanding person. You, you would just know yourself so loved and so mercifully cared for. You'd be hating all the ways that you treat your wife or husband badly by treating them in a way that God has not treated you in Christ. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There it is again. So let, let, let this hit you, that you are a sojourner. Your citizenship is in heaven where your inheritance is being kept for you. You're going to own everything someday here on this earth, sojourner, exile. Abstain. Hold back from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. How do they kill you? How do they wage war against your soul? How do emotions wage war against your soul? 
because they dethrone hope in God. They dethrone joy glorified and inexpressible. You have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. You have been born again. You have been ransomed by Christ so that the emotions that fill your soul are hope and faith and joy, loving Christ, treasuring Christ. And then there are these other passions. You need more money. You need more sex. You need more approval from men. You need more success. You need, you need, you need, you need. And they start to come in, and the joy, and the hope, and the faith, and the love start to become small. What did Jesus say? You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. That's what's going on here. The war. The war. They wage war. They come in to displace. You can't have them together. You can't have them together. If you want to love this world, you cannot love God. And so he's pleading, as sojourners and exiles, take the cues for your affections from heaven and Christ, not from the flesh of this world. And again, conduct follows passions. It's not the other way around. Abstain from the the passions and then conduct will follow. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. This word right here, kale in Greek, beautiful, honorable, beautiful. So that, and finally, this is the main point of the book. That is, this is the end of our linear summary of the book. Where's everything going? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, and yes, they do, but you can turn that around, at least for some of them, by God's grace, you may, they may see your good deeds. So you are keeping your conduct honorable, and now they are seeing this, and they glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, here's one of these arguments about what is the day of visitation. I'm inclined to think the day of visitation is the day God shows up to save them. Um, In Acts 15, 14, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. There's a picture of the visitation of God, God coming through the preaching of uh, Peter, and God visited and saved uh, Cornelius and his family. Luke 1, 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. And over in chapter 3, verse 1, it says to the wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, strive to win them without a word by your chaste behavior, your chaste conduct. So that would be uh, glorifying God on the day of visitation when the husband puts his, his faith in Christ. So 
I, I don't know for sure that this day of visitation, you know, if this were the second coming, then, then you'd have the same issue of, is the glorifying of God on the day of visitation willingly or unwillingly? Like every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, unbeliever and believer will all bow. But some will give him glory from a heart of faith and others constrained by a heart of rebellion. I don't think Peter is trying to get people to glorify God unsavingly. I think he's saying, I want you to so live that they will see your good deeds and glorify God. And you all recognize this is a quote from Matthew 5.16, which raises the little question. I think it's little. How do you want people to see your good deeds and give glory to your Father without disobeying Matthew 6.1 that says, don't do your acts of charity, your fasting, your praying, your almsgiving in order to be seen by men, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So don't do them to be seen by men. And here, um, strive to have your good conduct noticed so that people give glory on the day of visitation. And I think the answer is very simple. Fasting, praying, and almsgiving can be done in secret and should be. Helping your neighbor change a tire at one in the morning is not possible to be invisible. He called you or you saw him out there. It's 40 below zero, at least in Minneapolis it is. And, and he's struggling to get those bolts loose and, and he needs help. And if you go to help him, you can't do it invisibly. And so it is with all loving good deeds, right? Face-to-face -face good deeds. Anything you do for people, by definition, is seen by people. And that's what he's talking about. You don't, you don't have to have a sense of, oh, I've got to be seen, I've got to be seen. Just do it. Just love. And you'll be seen. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, um, we've got 13 minutes. And what I think I want you to see in those 13 minutes is, um, here's what's coming next. Let me see if I can give you the big picture and then maybe use one of the paragraphs as an illustration. The next thing we have is, okay, I hear you talking about uh, the, these new behaviors and, and conduct and uh, readiness to suffer. What about government? What about Nero? What about slaves and their masters? What about wives married to unbelieving husbands? Those are our three units that are, that are right here. Two of them at the end of chapter two, one of them. And then, and then husbands, what about your response uh, to, to the women that you're married to? And all three of those paragraphs have commonalities. They have interesting perspectives on how you deal with hardship in each of those government uh, you could call this employment, although that's kind of a whitewash. Slavery was not pretty. And, and then marriage. And uh, the issue is, how do you do it as an exile and a sojourner? How do you be a citizen of Canada and a citizen of heaven? So let's just take that paragraph, uh, verses 13 to 17. 
and, and probably that will be as far as we can get. So, but, but let the principles here in verses 13 to 17 spill over because this book is really about how to get along in a culture in Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Galatia, Asia, how to get along in those Roman provinces with persecution on the horizon and the, the society's already indifferent or hostile to you and can you be a citizen there and can you be married there to, to an unbeliever and, and can, can you serve as a slave and be a Christian when your slave master is so mean? That's the issue. Okay, so let's close with this paragraph. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That word right there, um, literally it's every human creature or creation. And it might mean only institution, but it is interesting that the paragraph ends honor everyone. Not just institutions. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. So the emperor, for sure, is in mind here. But what about honor everyone? So I, 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 my, my take is that Peter has in mind not just how do you relate to institutions like family or slavery or government, but how do you relate to the people in your life? Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, little pause there, that word, and I know I'm, I'm pulling rank here with regard to Greek, but maybe a few of you will be enticed to study Greek. I think that would be great, lay people or, or pastor. Huperekontos uh, here is the same word used in Philippians 2, 3, where it says, let each of you Consider others blank than yourselves. I grew up reading better than yourselves in the King James Version, which I always thought was strange because I, I knew I was better at algebra than my sister was. <laughs> so how to consider her better than me? When she could read 10 times faster than I, so she was the reader, I was the math guy, and, and I just didn't get that. That's not a good translation. Better, like better, what do you mean better? So I think the way the ESV translates it, pretty good, is um, um, count others more significant than yourselves. This is the word right here. The, the emperor as more, stronger, count others that way, which, which confirms my sense that it's not just institutions that are going on here. As you walk through life, Paul says, count everybody like that. Not that they're smarter than you are. You don't know if they're smarter than you are. Count them as worthy of your service. Everybody, your default to the crabby guy, the loud guy, two, two rows behind you on the airplane, or the people that, that are walking down the street and bump your shoulder and make you spill your coffee and weren't watching what they're doing, your default disposition should be to serve them. That's what this book is about. That's what Philippians is about. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Look what he has done for you and let this whole disposition of, of lowliness and humility and servanthood govern how you respond to the emperor or to the governor 
as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And, and we, should, we should have a whole seminar on how do you relate to governments that shift from rewarding the good and punishing the evil to rewarding the evil and punishing the good? I mean, clearly here it says the point of government is to punish the evil and to praise the good. That's, that's why they carry the sword. And they have a right to put people in jail and to put people to death. But they shouldn't put innocent people to death. And then they shouldn't protect guilty people. Now, what do you do if they do? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, I think that's a subordinate motive to chapter 2, verse 12, where you are to let your good deeds be seen that they may give glory to your Father. On the way to giving glory to your Father is to silence them. Over in chapter 4, verse, I think it's 17 or 13, where it says, do good deeds so that you might put to shame those who criticize your good behavior. So you got three steps. Silence them, shame them, bring them into the kingdom. And I don't think, the, I don't think Peter means for those to be alternatives. Like some of them are shut up and some of them are shamed and some of them get saved and give God glory. I think it, this is process. We, we want people's mouths to be stopped when they criticize the church wrongly. There are real criticisms of the church, and there are wrong criticisms of the church, and we would like to so live as to stop the mouths of those who do wrong criticism of the church on the way to, if necessary, being shamed, if necessary, on the way, I mean, if it works, on the way to giving glory to our Father. Live as people who are free. This is so crucial right here. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I'm going to get a color and put a big circle around that because I think that is stunning. So here, he, here's what he's, he's saying, okay, you've got Nero and you've got these governors that he sends to the uh, provinces of Rome or you've got government in Canada, you've got government in, in the United States. And he's saying... Basically, we are a law-abiding, submissive people. We don't get our back up. We submit, and the reason we submit is for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, meaning we don't, we don't belong here. We're exiles here. This is not our home. You don't own us. You can't tell us what to do. We have a king. His name is Jesus. He tells us what to do. We obey our king. And what does he tell us to do? Submit to the government. Which means that our mindset, verse 16, is we're free. When we keep the speed limit, when we pay our taxes, when we drive on the right, correct side of the road, (laughs) this is not England, right? Even though... It's kind of a connection. (laughs) We do that because of Jesus. It's worship. Driving on the right hand side of the road for Jesus' sake. I know your law says to do that. Your law is not my final law. 
Jesus is my final law. That's what it means to be an alien and an exile. And Jesus says, now the way I want you to relate is not as seditious. I want you to win these people by submission. And the reason is because submission shows a far greater work of God than rebellion. We're wired to be rebels. John Piper is wired to take people out who he doesn't like. (laughs) If God said to me, take out all abortionists, that would not be hard. To submit to love, serve, and try to change that way, that goes against everything in this fallen human being. Which is why I think that's the strategy here. But look, verse 16 says, we are free. We are free. In other words, you look like you're owned or guided by this society. You're not. You're owned and guided by the one who bought you with a ransom. You're free from this. But don't use your freedom as a cloak for evil, but as servants of God serve the people. It'll look to them like you are being um, obsequious or serving them. You know you're a free man. You are a free man. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told? I know we've got one minute. Do you remember the parable where, actually it wasn't a parable. Um, they said to Peter, so does, your, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And he said, hmm. He goes, ask Jesus, do we pay the temple tax? And Jesus said, the kings of the earth, from whom do they take tax? Their children or others? And Peter said, others. He said, right, you're free. Only, not to give offense, pay the tax. That's this paragraph. That's where where he got this paragraph. You see what he's saying? You're free. You don't have to pay this temple tax. Pay it. (laughs) But the whole motive structure of your soul, I'm a free man. As I die, as my head gets chopped off by Nero or I get crucified upside down, I'm not a slave to Nero here. I'm a free man obeying my Jesus as I die like Jesus. This is really radical. This is where we end, and this is what you have to come to terms with. How does Jesus mean to make a difference in Canadian society? Rebellion? Sedition? of Upheaval? or a kind of self-denying servant heart and love that will silence, will shame, and will bring people to give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Close with with this summary. This is almost as far as I thought we were going to get. I thought we might get through marriage, but next time summary of what we've seen so far. I think it's a summary of the book. We are chosen by God, verse 1. We are purchased with a great ransom by Christ and given a beautiful pattern to live, which we didn't get to. That's the next paragraph. Read that. We are born again, 
We are born into a living hope with inexpressible joy, which are the new passions of our life, not like the old ones. The Spirit is sanctifying us, making us into exiles and not people who are at home in this world. We have a new conduct that is flowing. We love each other and we love the people enough to lay our lives down in service to their structures of society so that they see we are free in a way that they can't understand. And the Gentiles then, God willing, God helping them, give glory to God. I think that's where we're going. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, even though we, we got a little bit into chapter 2, I pray that the trajectories of 1 Peter, this precious book for how to live in the face of the coming fiery ordeal and the pressures of our present time and the various trials that are refining our, our faith would bear fruit now in, in the lives of these friends. Oh, what a difference it would make if we were all conquered in this way from our selfishness and our pride and our rebelliousness and made into servants who live lives of kindness and gentleness and meekness, serving others that they might give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Do this great work for your great name. Through Christ, I pray. Amen.